Philippians chapter 2, and my brother, Pastor Jason, just said he was so blessed. He was so blessed by Ryan and Missy, and just, he said it was, he said it was so anointed, the worship was so anointed last Sunday that he just couldn't close, and they just had a time of prayer, and I said, yeah, it's, it's an anointed bunch that we have, and I really appreciate that, because when we function in our anointing, isn't that fun? I mean, it's liberating, right? You know, I don't know if I'm the most organized, anointed, organized person, Pastor, I'm praying for an administrative pastor that could help me out. But uh, when we function in our anointing, where there's just a flow of just joy and and uh, because we're really, it's really about Christ, and that's what we hunger for, isn't it? We really hunger to meet Christ in our midst. And so, in Proverbs chapter, I keep saying Proverbs. We're going to get to Proverbs, but in Philippians chapter two, um, we read about the humility of Christ. And before we get to that verse, I just want to look at a couple things. And I want to, as we continue to talk about the move of God, when we look at uh, great moves of God historically, what do we usually see? We always see, what do we see usually before a great move of God? Anyone? Anyone just shout it out. Anyone? Whenever you see God before he moves or just as he's moving, what, what are some of the things that you're seeing happening? there at that moment brokenness desperation another word anyone out out, out there heart harvey yes harvey how about humility and repentance just a humbling of uh god's people and then just a confession to god for need and for god's the need for god's intervention and so when we talk about humility, and whenever we talk about for a virtue or a Christian discipline, we always want to put Christ in the middle of that, because Christ is the, Christ is the humility of God, as we heard. And when we talk about humility, we want to be looking at Christ, not as something that we need to attain. And so if we can always return in our theology and have Christ in the middle of that theology, then we're going to understand what perfect humility is. And so when we look at humility, there's really two extremes to it. We see this historically, that, in the, that up to about the 1900s, and even, even in many parts of the world today, the concept of humility is not to think too high of yourself. Because if you think too high of yourself, then that's really the root of all evil. Okay, And that's what we hear, that's what we saw in the message of the traditional churches. Don't think too high of yourself. My wife tells me a story, and she just reminded me a couple of weeks ago. My wife likes to color red, and there's a story behind that, because when she was a little girl, she was like maybe four or five, uh, her grandmother gave her this beautiful red dress, beautiful little red dress, and she was so excited of it, she wore it, she went, she went to sleep in it, uh, she slept in this little red dress, she wanted to wear it to church, they went to Catholic church at the time, but her mother said, who was a staunch Catholic, said, you cannot wear that red dress. And my, my wife was just astounded. She was just shocked. Why can't I wear that red dress? Because it draws too much attention to yourself. And you, you could become proud. And so the dress went out the door and she never saw it again. So that's a sad story. <laughs> so every time you see her wearing red, there's a story behind it. That is not humility. That's religiosity. Yeah. And re- Christ is not religion. We were, Rodney and I and Liz were talking to a couple a little family on outreach yesterday, we were talking about the difference between religion and relationship. And to the other extreme of humility, the definition of humility, is in our modern Western culture that low esteem 
is the theory of all misbehavior. Actually, there was an article by a psychologist, and I don't remember her name. Uh, she wrote it a while ago, and she said that today's problems are not because people are thinking too highly of themselves, they're thinking too lowly of themselves. And they're thinking, they're thinking that they don't deserve much. And this is the root of all evil in society, is that people don't understand their importance. And so what do we do? What, is the natural, what does natural society do? Well, they throw things at that ego. Like, you are an awesome person. You, you need to believe in yourself. You can't, you can't accept other people's ideas about you. You've got to know who you are and function in that. The attractive deception about this theory of low esteem causing this behavior is that it does, not, it does not address the core problem. And what is the core problem? That our ego is broken. That's the core problem. Because you can tell someone all day, you're amazing, I'm gonna give you all this money, I'm gonna give you all this supply, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you in great, some great opportunity, and that actually may flatter that person, but it does not fix the core problem. Now the core problem is human depravity. I was thinking this morning, as I was getting ready, and let me ask you guys, is it Sunday mornings, is it like a different kind of day for you trying to get out the door with your kids? I don't know, for me, it's just crazy. I don't know, am I the only one in the room here, or maybe you guys got it down? I don't know. But just getting ready this morning, thinking, thinking and being very aware of my own human depravity, especially this morning. You know what deception is? Is when, when, when we begin to drift away from the doctrine of depravity, that we, are, that we uh, as human beings are fallen, and that our ego is broken. And I want to look at this, for example, here, for, that what is, so the first thing is, how do we define humility? Well, we see the two extremes historically, but I want to look at Paul's humility in a few minutes. But what is wrong with the ego? When we talk about ego, we need to understand what is the ego. The ego, which is just a big word for my sense of identity or my self-worth, my identity, who I am, how I think about myself, self-esteem is really not the problem. Self-esteem is really defined as what a person thinks about themselves. It is not self-image. Okay, do you see the difference there? Self-image is, is something different. Self-esteem is about the way a person feels about themselves, but it may not necessarily be true. Are you following me? Self-esteem is what you feel about yourself. It's not necessarily fact. What we feel is not fact. Emotions cannot think. Don't try to think with your emotions. If you feel emotional, at certain times in your life, just realize, I'm being emotional right now and I'm not thinking clearly. And then just give yourself grace. Let God love you. Let God just love on you. Self-image is something else. It's new, our new identity. Self-image is our identity and our sense of self-worth. What's, what's wrong with our ego? I think that all of us in this room, we don't need to spend a lot of time on that. But when Paul talks to the Corinthian church about their brokenness and their ego... And the Corinthian church was a very gifted, it was a very, it was a very flamboyant, it was a port city, it had a lot of issues. Everything, all the fads and all the weird trends that would come into Europe were coming into the port of Corinth. The church was about 200 people, people, people say, scholars say that, and they were dealing with a lot of issues. When Paul's speaking to the Corinthians, he doesn't use the word pride hubris, which we would use which he would normally use. He uses a different Greek word, and it's very interesting. He uses this word physio, which means it gives, it's, it's actually a medical term, or it's a medical image that gives the impression of an organ in your body that's, that, is, that is not functioning properly, 
it's inflated, it's, it's uncomfortable because there's too much air being pumped into it. It's beginning to expand, it's inflated, it's, it is inflamed. And so there's three things, there's four things here that Paul talks about, and I think that we can see this with human ego today, which is in the center of our culture, American culture, that it's empty, that it's empty. And emptiness can be puffed up with nothing in the center. It's like a balloon. It can be pumped up, it can be flattered, it can be, it can be inflated, and that, that emptiness creates a sense of pain. When something is inflamed or too large or overinflated, that creates pain. That pain creates self-awareness or self-consciousness. Or I'm relating everything to how I feel about this. I walk into a room and my first thought is naturally is how do I relate to all of these people or how do all these people relate to me? And so an inflamed, painful ego is pumped up because it's empty and that creates a third issue, busyness. It causes being, it causes being very driven. We as a society, our American society is very driven and that's because all of us in this room are sons and daughters of immigrants, okay? Unless you're an American Indian, do we have American Indians here? Okay, maybe we have some, but, but otherwise, we are, we are sons and daughters of immigrants, people that have left their country, moved to the United States, started from scratch, from zero, and worked very hard to be where they are today, so that, we can, so that, so that they can provide a better life for their kids. And so that's in our DNA. You know, when you and I make decisions, that, that gets imprinted in our DNA in some way, and it actually can get passed on to our, our descendants. And so that is in us, this work hard ethic, this achievement ethic, where we are very driven. And if my ego is inflated, and it's in pain, and it's drawing a lot of attention to itself, and it's the center of every one of my conversations, then it's gonna, cause me, it's gonna make me a very driven person. I'm not gonna have peace in my heart. I'm not gonna be at rest. And that creates four, the fourth condition, and that creates it's very fragile. Because something that is very inflated, something that is very big, something that is out of range or out of overextended is, at, is in danger of being popped and a blow up and just pain, right? I remember we had uh, balloons for my son's second birthday. And these were balloons we got. There's like a little balloon machine that we got at Walmart. You know these little balloon things? I just discovered it. I'm discovering the world of kids. It's just so funny. And we showed up. Somebody said, hey, why don't you go to this fall festival? We went to one in the afternoon. We showed up. Our kid has no, he's got like no, he's got no costume or nothing. We're like, oh, we were supposed to bring a costume? And then we go to this fall festival with Jeff last night. All the kids are like all tech cutting. And we're just walking around with Caleb with no, no, no costume. I'm like, we I, are. Mine didn't either. So. We were like, we're just such, such ignorant parents. We're just walking around like, wow, do we feel, we're so foreign to this this child's, uh, this, this children's culture. Fragile, I mean fragile, our egos can, be so, can, can become so fragile at any moment it can be popped and deflated. Why? Because we fear becoming irrelevant. We fear, I mean that's what age does, right? I don't know if any of you guys felt that. But we feel that we're becoming irrelevant and that's what the midlife crisis is. That's why, that's why men and their, women in their 40s and 50s do these crazy things. I don't usually quote the culture of, of the world, but I read, I just, I, last night I just was reading different, um, different interviews by well-known actors and um, 
actresses and uh, performers about what they regretted about their life, what they would like to do different. And I read this, um, I don't know if you saw Princess Bride, but do you remember the, the Spanish guy who was uh, looking for the, the man who killed his father with six fingers? I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a real movie watcher, but we saw that. And that guy, the Spanish guy, he turns out to be this actor in another series of films here. He's Jewish and he's just plays a CIA guy in this homeland thing. And uh, so I was just reading it. It was an, it was an interview about what he said. He said, time is running out. I wish I'd spent more time getting to know people. And you know, when you, when you read these things about people, they are in these incredible places where you and I would be like, wow, if I was there, I'd be so satisfied. What more would I want? I mean, the home there in Hollywood, the Rolls Royce, what more could I ask for? And I was reading, and then I read this thing by Madonna, and she was really big in the 90s. And this is what she, this is what she wrote, and I felt that this was such, so significant of the way the world thinks. And when you read this, it's so significant to me because this is what she says. She is in, she's being interviewed by Vanity Fair in 1991, which was like somewhat the beginning of her, of her career. And she says this, my drive, notice the word drive, Drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. Wow. This is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Wow. That is the story of someone being driven by an overinflated ego that's in pain and that does not know that, that, that it has to be busy because it's so fragile because at any moment it could become irrelevant. It could become pot. What's the answer? It's not self-esteem. It's not pumping up my self-esteem. It's not doing things that flatter my personality. There's something wrong. There's something broken inside and that's brokenness in our identity. Our ego is broken. And that is what Paul here is talking about. But here's what the world does. Okay, this is what the world does. And I just read this, just I read this verse in Proverbs chapter 7, uh, verse 14. And I was just so, it's 15. It's so interesting. It's about the woman who comes up to seduce this young man. And it says, she says the most interesting thing. And she says this, she says, she says, so now I have come out to meet you. I'm coming after you. I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Now, what does that sound like? Does that sound like the system that we live in? The system of flattery? Like you walk into a store, and like you are just being flattered. Like how many, how many have been to the, the, white, the Woodlands Mall here, and you're walking down those, one of those little hallways there, and there's these little kiosks, and you get this young guy come up, or this young lady come up to you, Say, wow! You just, you know, you're just, you're beautiful. I mean, you got such beautiful fingernails. Can I, can I work on your hands a little bit? And then that's just, you know, you're you're there yes. for twenty minutes. You just can't. There's no way you're going to break away from that. And the, the 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 approach to the approach to you and I by the system that we live in is flattery. And you know, if if I'm living in my broken ego, and I don't understand what we're going to look at in a second with Paul, then I'm going to let that stroke my ego. And bring me into slavery. Does that make sense? 
This is the way the whole world, it says, I've risen, she says this, I've risen up, I've stirred my, I've come up out to meet you, I've looked for you eagerly. I, I, we look at ourselves like, I don't, am I that, you know, who am I that the system would want to come after me like that? And if we're not careful, then we go, we fall into, we, be, we fall into cycles of sin and we fall into cycles of destruction. You know what the funny thing about pride is this? Is that when we get what we want, we see this coming at us, and we see the energy, I'm, I'm coming after you, I'm looking for you eagerly. Me? You're looking for me? Who am I? Like, no one's ever taken so much interest in me. What, what am I? Like, why am I, why am I getting this flattery? This is so nice. This is, nobody's ever talked to me like this. Not, not even my own, my own spouse doesn't even talk like that to me. And I'm getting all this attention. And it strokes the ego. And it deceives us and puts us in a place. Because our ego is broken. And it can't discern. What happens? It puts us in a place where we become, we become stunned. And we become hypnotized. And we get, we get sucked into this thing. But guess what happens? When we fall for it. And this, this, the, the, the system could be the medical world. It could be the educational world. Put anything you want in any part of society. And it... And it begins to flatter you. What, what it does is this. Is when, we, when it gets us, when we get hooked in and we get dragged down, guess what happens? There's no satisfaction there. Why? Because the ego is broken and the ego can't be satisfied. Right? The broken ego, it's never enough. You can get the nicest stuff and then it's, it's not good enough until it's better than everybody else's. How many of us know that game? You get it. You get the thing you wanted and you think, okay, I should be good with this. Nope. <laughs> because somebody else has got a better one. <clears throat> they got a nicer car. Because <clears throat> it's not enough. The ego can't be, can't be satiated. Here's a third thing. Paul. Let's look at Paul. Paul here is a beautiful example of a man who has allowed himself to be crucified. And this is what he said. Paul's in a situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And he's dealing, it's the first chapter of the, of a letter that he writes to the church that he has planted. He planted the church in Corinth. This is an amazing church, very gifted. Things are great, things are going on. But there's some, there's some party spirit. There's, there's cliques going on there. There are these uh, personality groups. There's a lot of issues going on there. And now the church is actually attacking him, the guy who planted that church. And so this is what he writes. He's talking about being a good steward. He says in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, What you think of me or any human court means nothing. Neither my own opinion of myself, whether judgmental or elated. He's saying this way. What you think of me, Corinthian, the Corinthian church, it's, it doesn't mean a lot to me. I mean, it's, what is he meaning here? He's not being insensitive. He's just saying that my ego is in a place where it can't be touched by somebody else's criticism. Okay, are you seeing the connection here? And he says, as a matter of fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not even, I'm not even passing judgment on myself. Because he says later on, he says, because I don't, even, I don't even know how to judge myself. What criteria do I have to even be able to judge myself? He says, so I don't even enter into that whole game of judging myself. It's the Lord that judges me. And when did the, when did the Lord judge us? When did the Lord judge us? It's a simple question. Hello, anybody? When did the Lord judge us? 2,000 years ago at Calvary, right? Judgment had passed. He judged us. 
And what did he judge us? He, he, in Romans chapter 11, I love these verses, 32 to 38, he said this, that Paul says this, he said that God concluded the whole world in unbelief. The whole world in unbelief. There's nobody better than, there's nobody that had more, a little bit more belief than, than others. No, everybody fails. Just a total fail. I love that verse. You know why? Because that's where my day starts. That's where my day starts. God, you saved me. I had no belief in myself or in anything. And therefore, I'm starting here from ground zero. It says in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, I think it is, somebody correct me, or one of those verses there. It says that he concluded the whole world, he judged the whole world in unbelief so that, that's the purpose clause in the Greek, so that, why? Because the eternal purpose was that he might have mercy on all. God said, let's just lay this straight. Let's just like lay this, let's make this so clear that there is nobody, no, not one that's good. All have turned their backs. You all run. You guys are all forsaken. And that's why I love it that God allowed all the disciples to forsake Christ on the cross. It just made it that much clearer, the purpose of Christ. Yeah. It's that, that like, I remember back in the day, in the 80s and the 90s, there was this kind of theory, this kind of thought in the persecuted world that if you were a believer, and I, I can't say this because I've never been in that position, but if you denied Christ, then you would not, you were not saved. You were not born. You would lose your salvation. And I would push back against that because if I could lose my salvation by denying Christ, that in some way would poke a hole or that would kind of in some way destroy the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ who was God himself. And so Paul here says, I do not even judge myself. I'm not even in this place where I'm judging myself. And then he goes on further and he says this. He goes, as a matter of fact, he says to, Peter, to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he says this. And he talks about Christ coming for sinners. And then he goes, by the way, of who I am chief. Now, this is an apostle, and he's using the present tense. Get it? He's using present tense. He's not saying, I used to be a sinner when I was a Pharisee, but that all is clean. that's all done. Now life is good. I've grown and matured. No, I am, and, and not just I am, he's, I am chief. Isn't that amazing? Like, here is the apostle, which he could be considered probably historically the first pope, not Peter. That's an interesting study, but if you look at Paul, the founder of the church in Rome, if we want to, if we want to look for a pope, we point to him, although we're not doing that. Paul says, he goes, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm concluded a sinner, chief of sinners. Paul said that in the present tense. How could he say that and at the same time say, I'm a servant of God, I'm an apostle by the will of God, I am, I'm a spiritual father in your life. How could he understand these two extremes in his life? yet at the same time not have a broken ego. This is how he did it. And by the way, if, I, if I'm walking around saying, you know, I'm such a bad person, I'm such a bad person, which we could say that, but if that's my focus, we need to understand that you and I are not, we are not qualified to judge ourselves. If you want to assess your life to see how am I doing spiritually, am I a spiritual person or am I a mature person, we can't make that conclusion. We have to look at the Word of God. Does that make sense? We have to look at the Word of God that makes that conclusion for us. And Paul says this. He says in Galatians 2, verse 20. I love this. And look at the, look at the beauty of these verses. Look at the, the depth of the verse. He says this to the Galatian church. He says, I am, present tense, not I was, but I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, but wait, 
I live. And this is the problem where the two extremes of humility is where I'm either self-obliterated because I can't think too highly of myself, or I think too low of myself and I need people to pump air into my life, which causes a lot of pain and, and suffering. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. My ego, my identity, I am, is crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm an entity. I'm a person. I'm a creation. I'm a personality. I mean something. I still exist. Yet not I. Yet not I. It's not me pushing the buttons. It's not me at the steering wheel. I've surrendered to Christ, who is the prime. And he says, it's Christ who lives in me. Lives. And this is the beautiful part of Galatians 2.20. Lives. This is our Christianity. This is, the, this is what I want to focus on, and I'm going to close. Christ lives in us. We can get stuck on the pre-cross and say, yeah, take up my cross. Yeah, I'm doing that. Okay, I'm suffering. Okay, I'm spiritual now. I'm suffering. No, we go through the cross. We come into resurrection. The primary message of the first church, the first 100 years, Christ lives in us. And as what we said the last couple of weeks is that we don't need to seek for revival. That's not something that we say, okay, this is revival week. We're going to put a tent out in the front lawn. And God bless, I mean, that's great. God uses that. But revival is in us in John chapter 11. I am the way, the truth. I am the resurrection. He's in us. He's in you. Victory is in you. It's not something, oh, I'm working on myself. Humility is not something that we can work on. We just can't get there. We can't humble ourselves. We can make that decision to receive the humility of Christ. And that was so beautiful what Jeff just said. That there's no way that we can take part in Christ, take part of the Godhead. We can't take part in the Trinity on an experiential level without under receiving the humility of Christ. And this is what I want to just finish on. This is this, this spoke to me so deeply late last night as I was as I was reading this. Is that Paul is saying in Galatians two verse twenty? He said, "Christ living in me." I don't know how your week looked like this week. Christ living in you is greater than all of that other stuff. Yeah. Sometimes we start drowning in rejecting, drowning in all of the crazy details of our lives. Christ lives in us. Present tense, not Christ lived in me, or Christ will live in me when I get to this level of maturity. Christ is alive in you and I. He's alive, he's alive. And that means that we can speak life into people. That means we can speak the mind of God to people. That means that we are walking and talking a kingdom of God people. That means that whatever you and I touch, is, is the Midas, spiritual Midas touch. It turns to gold. Why? Because we are God. We are sons and we are sons and daughters of God the Father. I don't know what you think about yourself or where your ego is at. It doesn't matter. You and I, we are new creations in Christ. We are loved. This is what, and this is what the center, this is what, this is what causes our praise and our adoration and our worship of Christ is that when we look at him and we say, that is the ego. That is the that is the unit, the ego of the universe. That is the personhood of God. That is the greatest. That's our King and our Savior, our God, our our lover of our soul. And this is the beautiful thing about humility <clears throat> is that when you, if C.S. Lewis said this in his book about pride, he says this in one of I think it was the last chapter. He gives this, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, if you were to ever meet a humble person, you wouldn't even know it. Because it's not gonna, you're not going to even take notice of their humility because it's always going to be about their love and interest in you. Yeah. <clears throat> Does that make sense? That means like, that means like if I meet Christ, I would not be like, oh, what a humble person. I wouldn't, because that person 
is living with such God consciousness and the presence of God in their life that it's not about them in any way. That's good. And that means that I can be very, I can, that means that per, humility has nothing to do with personality. That's what, that's sincerity. Sincerity means it's, it's a personality thing. I can put on in my personality sincere. I'm going to be sincere. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be pleasant. But that's not humility because you can offend that person. You can get that person upset. Humility looks like Jesus in the, <clears throat> in the temple of, of God overturning tables, throwing money everywhere, <laughs> just getting everybody upset. That's, that's humility right there. Humility also is John 13. Jesus, in his vulnerability and nakedness, is washing his disciples' feet. Yeah. Humility is what makes us worship the grace of Christ. And I want to finish with this. What releases us from, from cycles of broken ego? When we start getting self-aware, and that happens every day, multiple times. Something hits us, and it makes us self-aware. It makes us, makes us feel threatened. It makes us remind. It reminds us of past wounds. How do we get out of that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have psychological answers, and nor does the Bible. But I can tell you that to the measure that we become occupied with Christ in our life, the personhood of Christ in other people, in our midst, and in our own life, we were saying this. Vanessa was saying this at the beginning, like that we can look beyond a person's struggle and we can look beyond their trial and their sin because that's not who they are. We, we discern Christ in them. Does that make sense? That we're discerning Christ in the body of Christ. That means when somebody walks through those doors, you and I have the mission, the ability, and the responsibility to see Christ in that person and not their, not their struggle, not their trials. You know, like, oh, that's so-and-so, and he, they're struggling with that. No, that's not. That's, that's, that's the old man. That's the false self. That's not who they are. And we need to reinforce who people are in Christ. Amen? We need to reinforce people who they are in Christ. And that's humility. When you and I come to a place where we are where we are just so blown away by the humility of Christ, it hurts, by the way. It's painful. Because when the humility of Christ comes over, it's awkward. You know? Here's Jesus, nothing, he's wearing nothing. And he's washing my feet. Is that awkward? Yes. That's not that's not that's not that's not normal. I mean, that's not humanity. But it is, it's the humility of the grace of God. You know what it does with Peter? It breaks Peter. Yeah. True grace breaks people. It doesn't say go and sin, live in sin. That's the thing. When you say, when you say, well, we preach grace here. Well, you guys are liberal. You guys are progressive Christian. No, we're not. True grace is going to break you and put you and I on our knees, on our face before God. In absolute repentance, in absolute brokenness and sorrow about sin and like it's going to convict us in such a way that God so loved us and we were such a mess and we were so broken in Romans chapter 5 that we were without this and without that and we were enemies of God yet Christ loved us and that's what heals us that's what heals me that's what sets me free to know that there's that I'm not the biggest ego in my life it's Christ in us and it sets us free and that just wipes us out and when 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 Jesus appeared to Paul on his high horse, right? What does Paul say? My Lord, immediate, immediately, revelation. What do people need to see in the woodlands? They need to see Christ. They need to see Christ. They need to see Christ in broken, in broken vessels. We're bushes. We're like that bush that, that Moses saw in the, in the wilderness. God's showing Moses this bush with a fire in it. It's very symbolic. 
Moses, you're just frail, you're broken, you're a mess, you're 40 years in the desert, you're lost in your calling, yeah, I'm going to put a fire in you and it's not going to consume you. We're just bushes, we're just fragile, broken things, and that's okay, because God loves that. And when we come in our brokenness to God and say, God, I'm a mess, I'm a mess, Lord, have compassion on me, Romans chapter 7, oh, wretched man that I am, that's good. And I want to say this, maybe you're going to misunderstand this, but when the devil attacks you, just agree with him. Just say, yeah, I am that, and I'm much worse than that. You don't even know me, you know? But don't live in it. Just say yes. And that's why the compassion of God came upon me, and the grace of God came upon me, and Jesus came, and that's why I'm so loved. Compassion and love and identification to the Holy Spirit, that comfort of the Holy Spirit, sets us free from all of our ego issues. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. It's a beautiful church. I love showing up here every Sunday with you guys and, and just seeing what God's doing in our midst. And, and uh, I just think I just have such great, I just have such great um, sense of what God's going to do in our future. And I don't know what that looks like, but I do know that it just if God is on the move. Um, I said this before, but I think we're pregnant. I think our church is pregnant with a lot of great spiritual babies. <laughs> Give us five to ten years. I want you to see God do some great things. And if times are hard, if you're struggling, be encouraged because that's the work of God. And he's breaking up the fallow ground. And when the, when the fallow ground's broken up, then fruit can, can, be, can be expressed. So let's just close our eyes and bow our heads for a moment. <clears throat>